Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Prior to COVID-19, the AOD sector struggled to attract, recruit and retain the workforce required to deliver quality care. The situation is now critical. However, it's not all doom and gloom. The AOD workforce are caring, professional and passionate people who advocate for those who access services. Despite the challenges we face as a sector, the workforce demonstrates a resilience and commitment to delivering positive outcomes and experiences for people in their care. Here to explore challenges and opportunities faced in the AOD sector is this week's podcast guest, Robert Sterling. Robert is the CEO for the Network of Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies and is responsible for representing the interests of the New South Wales non-government AOD sector across policy, sector and workforce development and research. He sits on several national New South Wales boards and committees representing the NGO AOD sector. Robert has worked in the AOD sector for 15 years across the government and NGO sectors and holds qualifications in public health and community management. He is currently undertaking a doctorate exploring performance measurement of AOD treatment. In this week's episode, Robert delves into what the AOD workforce looks like at present and what an ideal workforce would look like in the future. He also discusses strategies for attracting and retaining the workforce and ways to develop future managers and leaders that will ensure the sustainability of the sector. Thanks very much for joining us, Robert. I appreciate your time and thanks for sharing your journey, your story, your experience with our listenership. We appreciate you coming on board. Thank you. Robert, there's a lot to talk about, but I'd love to start back at the start. Where it, where, how did it all start for you in, in, as it relates to getting into this space to where you are now, the CEO of uh, Network of Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies? So how did take us on the journey from... Well, you're a bit younger. I think, like most people, my journey to the drug and alcohol sector is not planned, I think is probably the best way to describe it. I started with a temporary contract position at the Ministry of Health in New South Wales back in, I can't recall, actually, it was probably about 16 years ago. Wow. I'd just come back from teaching English overseas and wanted a change, and I'd previously worked in law enforcement and thought that sounded interesting. 
And I guess it sounded interesting because I grew up in Mount Druid in Sydney's western suburbs, yeah. grew up with a lot of substance use around the family and my community and my own issues, issues, my own use throughout my teenage and 20s. Yeah, so when you got into, with regards to law enforcement, was it general duties, was it? Um... It was telecommunications interception. Wow. Yeah, intelligence. That, w- that would have been interesting. It was super interesting, but I was a young gay man working with a lot of old, very conservative police officers and federal agents, and it wasn't what I saw as a long-term career. Okay. So it, was it more from a cultural perspective? The work itself was interesting? The work was interesting, but yeah, just, I mean, I think I'd done my time. I'd worked in the industry for five years. It was really yep. interesting, very interesting, but I think I'd probably moved as far as I was going to go unless I wanted to change where I wanted to go. I understand. Tell our listeners a little bit about growing up in Mount Druitt as a gay person. Was it tough? Was it challenging? And how, where do you think we've come since then? I couldn't tell you where we've come since then because I haven't been back to Mount Druitt for a okay. really long time. I moved out when I was 18. So, I mean, I guess it was alienating. I mean, I certainly didn't grow up feeling like I belong. I spent a lot of time in the community theatre, which probably didn't help me either yeah. in terms of bullying and relating to other people my own age. So... Do you think do you think the culture of Australia has has gotten better as as it relates to accepting and making it more comfortable? I think because I live in the inner west of Sydney, it's really hard to answer that question. Yeah. I think definitely within Sydney. inner city suburbs in Sydney and Melbourne and other areas, yes, absolutely. But I think once we go out regional and rural, I'm sure the situation is not that. Yeah. Okay, so tell us what what was your first step into this space? So it was that contract with the Ministry of Health and it was actually looking at merit data and so so that's why the link from the law enforcement came in in terms of the contract position that I had at the Centre for Drug and Alcohol. And so it was looking at data, their law enforcement data from the merit, the magistrate's early referral into treatment program. And, and what were some of the things that you found when you were looking at that data? Look, I mean, for me, the data was new. So for me, it was more the experience of starting to understand, I totally understand a new sector that I had no background in. I had no health background. So I ended up doing a Master's of Public Health later after I'd been a couple of years into working in drug and alcohol. So for me, it was just learning, getting to know the people and feeling like I'd found my people, feeling like I'd found my tribe. Yeah. It's an important aspect, isn't it, of of your work? You know, just the, I guess, the benefits of finding a workplace or a job that you really feel that you're contributing, but also that you're enjoying the culture of. Finding a tribe, being able to feel that you're welcome and that you belong. It's, uh, I mean, no matter what you're doing in life, it's important. Absolutely. And I think that definitely progressed. So I did two years at the Centre for Drug and Alcohol, or it moved to the Mental Health and Drug and Alcohol Office while I was there. But I moved over to the NGO Peak after two years, and I think that's where I really found that place where, you know, thrived. So the differences that you found between your initial two years and moving over the NGO space? It was a great starting point yes in terms of working in government for two years and kind of understanding that policy perspective but going to work in the non-government sector is where i feel you can be innovative responsive flexible uh, flexible and i love that and i guess that's why i'm still at nada 14 years later yeah i mean it's incredible obviously you've you've moved up the ranks in within the organization tell us how has the organization changed since you started to now i mean is it growing a lot as it I mean the services the offerings what it would tell us about how it's changed well it's probably tripled in 
the size of the organisation. So we're still a small not-for-profit ourselves. We're 14 people. So, yeah, it was less than half of that back when I started. I think there was probably about five of us. Wow. Still doing data, but that's really grown since the time that I was there. Before it was just minimum data set. Now we've expanded our online portal to include client outcome measures. And so that's really blown up the data collection side of things. And in terms of workforce, we've become trusted by government as a vehicle to develop the workforce. And so that's really expanded both our funding base with the Commonwealth, but also with the state health department. Are they funds you have to fight for year to year? We're really fortunate we don't have to fight year to year. They have, we get additional add-ons and we've been really fortunate that those additional add-ons have then been built into our core budget. And I think probably the other thing that we did and something that I'm really passionate about is about research and starting to commission research and work a lot more with academic partners to not only demonstrate our own effectiveness as a peak body, but also the sector. And so how did NADA come about? How did it start? NADA is over 40 years and it started, as our name implies, Network of Alcohol and Drug Agencies from a network of drug and alcohol services who banded together to have a single voice with government. So it really started on the ground from right. services coming together to have a single voice. And when they, when they were looking, were they also looking at integration of services and how they can provide better outcomes for patients as well? Is, is that how it sort of stemmed from as well or not really? Not that I know of. I mean, okay. obviously 40 years ago I wasn't around, but the, the story that I hear from those that were around at that time was that it really just started as a vehicle to have a single voice to government to advocate. Okay. And so over that 40 years obviously we've seen – the influence that the organisation now has with the growth that it's, it's had, uh, it's now a key, a key voice to government. Tell us, are you seeing that that's, that's been pivotal in your being able to sustain and grow as an organisation, that link to government? I think it's the reputation and the intelligence that we provide. I think we're respected by government because it's not about our voice, it's not about NADA's voice, it's about the voice of our members. It's about the 80 drug and alcohol services we represent across the country and being a vehicle to bring those voices together um, into a single voice. In the AOD sector, how have we seen the workforce develop over the time that you've been involved with NADA? Look, I think there's definitely been a professionalisation of the sector, not to say that they weren't professional before, but I think over the, well, certainly the last 15 years, we've definitely seen a growth. Part of that through the investment from government, there was the Improved Services Initiative that was funded by the Commonwealth, which was around increasing the mental health capacity of drug and alcohol services, which was a, an amazing investment by government. So there's been initiatives like that. I talked in my presentation about subsidies to do the cert for and alcohol and other drugs. So there were incentives to build the, the qualifications of the sector to have a minimum standard. We don't have a minimum standard in New South Wales. There is in the ACT and Victoria for drug and alcohol, which is a cert for an AOD. Yes. We don't have that in New South Wales, but the data that we've collected from our sector is that there's a very small proportion of services of the workforce that don't have a qualification under so forth. Okay. And so, I mean, if we go back to the workforce before COVID, the sector was already struggling. Mm -hmm. It was under-resourced from a people point of view, from a funding point of view. How have we found, I mean, even in light of the last two years, the problem must be worse? Absolutely. Yes, the problem was bad before in terms of, well, our capacity to respond, but also the well-being of the workforce. And I think part of that is the stigma and discrimination of the area that we work in and the people that we support of being underfunded um, and under-resourced within the organisations as well. So, yes, I mean, 
I presented some data that talked about the decrease in well-being and also the increase in anxiety levels of the, the workforce. That was done in 2020. So really, yeah. in my engagement with service managers across the state, all I hear is about the workforce crisis. Yeah, the crisis, but also the the challenging environment that a lot of them are facing themselves and their and their own mental health, right? Absolutely, yes. It's not just the frontline workers; it's everyone. It's admin workers through to senior management, and and the struggles around recruitment and retention of staff. I think you know the the great resignation is real, and we definitely have seen it, as I know, across the entire health sector. But, uh, we're certainly seeing it here in drug and alcohol. So what do you think are some of the solutions moving forward around how we can attract key people, vital positions that are in demand to help us um, or help the sector cope with the demand of services? There's no one solution. There's a range of solutions. And I think obviously addressing stigma and discrimination to people who use drugs is a big one. Not an easy, but attracting people to work in the sector when there is that stigma and discrimination is a real challenge. So we need to make it more attractive. And part of making it attractive is making it stable, so having longer-term contracts for services, but also looking at things like the award of what we're going to pay people to make it attractive to work in the drug and alcohol sector is really important. And if we're not able to do that, then looking at other types of incentives to make it attractive for people to work in. Yeah. Yeah, so, and so do you think... So do you think we have the workforce here? We just need to try and incentivise them to come across and join this sector or do you think we need to go overseas what do you think we need to do look I've, i haven't even thought about the overseas question i mean i know in the public health system that's something that they're actively looking at into yeah. the nursing workforce i mean for me we need a multidisciplinary workforce that's also diverse in its profile i mean i think for me that's what's important i mean at the moment you know we talked about cert four qualifications because often that's what our services can afford um, we can't afford nurses with the type of funding that we yeah. can. And I think that's a problem. And so I think that systemic funding issue needs to be addressed before we can look at the workforce because I think all of our services should have a nurse, psych, social workers as part of a range of peer workers and, and other people to support people with drug and alcohol issues. It's, it, I mean, it's not just the health sector either or the health industry, right? This, the staffing issue is across most industries in Australia at the moment. That's what makes it challenging. And it also what makes us not want to come across looking like whingers to government as yeah. well because I, I, you can see it in their face when you're saying it because they're dealing with the same stuff with Teachers, their own workforce. With, and so yeah. it's, it's, it's a really challenging space for everyone to be in right now. And I, you kind of feel like you're on your own. Yeah. Yeah. If we, if we focus on the health and well-being of the, the workers in the sector, yeah. Tell us, how have you seen that impacted after, after or during COVID? Because I, I know we're not finished it yet, but tell us how we've seen that play out with the, with the workers. Well, I think workers are tired generally, but I don't know. I think it's a really hard question to answer, actually, mm. um, because we did a lot of worker wellbeing work before COVID, and what we found was the majority of the workforce wellbeing is pretty good. And I think what we need to do is look at it now to, to fully understand it, because I, I don't think I can answer that properly without getting some good data to, to tell us what, it, what the situation is. And the answer, I'm sure, is not just simply, you know, giving them a couple of tools or access to a couple of apps. It's, it's really trying to get that holistic approach, trying to make sure that, you know, that we show that we care and that they're, 
they're getting a few tools to their belt to help equip them to be mentally healthy while they continue to do their job. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, I think there's all I, I mentioned earlier about some of our large services onboarding a lot of new people to the workforce that don't have skills in the sector, but they're taking them on because there's no one else to do the jobs. And I think that impact that that's having on managers to onboard and train up new staff is going to, is obviously having a big impact on service delivery, but also on the well-being of our managers as well. What about the opportunity within the peer workforce? I mean, do you see that as being a key part moving forward to assisting and helping to provide some solutions around trying to cater for that under-resourced part of the sector? Absolutely. So 42% of our workforce, we did a survey in 2017, and 42% of our workforce identified as having lived experience. Wow. But the question that followed after that was whether you disclose in the workplace, and it was still fairly high. I think it was 30% of the people that responded that they had lived experience. And then we also asked whether they were in an identified position and then that number dropped down even more. So across the whole sample, only 7% of workers are in an identified lived experience position within that sample of people that responded. When I did my doctorate study looking at how we achieve good outcomes in drug and alcohol services, what I heard from service users was about the importance of having lived experience to have people that have been through that journey to have people that are non-judgeable, they perceive to be non-judgmental. It's important to retain them in treatment because they're able to talk about their own journey. I think we're, we're really, there is a real opportunity to look at how we redefined positions in the drug and alcohol sector and how we utilise people with lived experience. I know in New Zealand they've done a lot of work around core competencies of lived experience roles around consumer positions and peer workers and we haven't gone down that path here. And I know sometimes we get... You know, we can't copy what mental health does. We need to redo the, you know, there's differences, lots of issues around stigma and discrimination and different approaches, different philosophies. But I think there's a absolutely huge opportunity to build a peer workforce in the drug and alcohol sector. Do you think there's opportunities for them to, to drive their own development for their own skill sets as well to improve? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. We, you know, with some support, absolutely. Tell us about the need. I mean, is it because it's not just workers on the ground. We actually need leaders as well coming across, managers to help help organise and 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 help their teams deliver the outcomes. Where do you think? Do you think that's a matter of just finding and upskilling the existing staff to do that, or does it? Are we, are we looking at trying to look outside the sector for that? We, myself and our sister peak in Victoria, Varda, just commissioned Curtin University to do a study on pathways for managers and leaders in the drug and alcohol sector. And we just got, we've only just got the reports recently, so we're still kind of digesting what the results mean for us. But what we found was around 20 capabilities of leaders in the drug and alcohol sector, but actually number one was AOD knowledge, which I found really interesting that mm. AOD knowledge was the number one capability but I've reflected on it and I thought actually that it, it actually makes sense that if you have a manager of a leader managing frontline workers and they don't understand drug and alcohol, if they don't understand treatments, if they don't understand the philosophies and the principles behind drug and alcohol treatment, they're not going to get that um, level of credibility and respect from their frontline workers. And I think that is very obvious in the drug and alcohol sector. So if I was a new manager or leader coming into the drug and alcohol sector without that but was a really strong leader, that would be the first development thing that I would do is to really like go and visit a service, spend time fully understanding yeah. the sector to, to be a strong leader in the sector. 
that was no better way to do it, is there? Other totally. than to get get in there and, and get amongst it. Absolutely. Charles, do you think most workers, and it's hard to generalise, but do you think, broadly speaking, that the workers feel valued or even secure in their work in this sector? No, definitely not. So I think what comes with, and I'm only talking on behalf of NGOs because yeah. that's who I represent, government contracts are sh- often short and managers of drug and alcohol services will take a one-year contract if it means that they're able to continue to provide services and doing what they are there to do. But what that does is it creates uncertainty for the workforce in terms of their contract duration and employment security, I think, is something that we don't have. And so how can you feel valued as a worker if you don't know if you're going to have a job in three months when we come to the end of a contract period? So I think some of those structural things I talked about earlier are really important to have a sustainable workforce. We need to have longer-term contracts, but we also need to pay a lot better than we currently do under the current awards. And do we? What's the role that NADA's playing in trying to push for that? I mean, is there is there a policy push here, or for sure? So absolutely. I mean, I the special commission of inquiry into the drug ice in New South Wales handed down the report mm-hmm. in January 2020, and a, a lot of that was around how do we improve the drug and alcohol sector. But I think definitely our role as peaks has always been to advocate for longer term contracts and to reduce the burden and compliance that government funding comes along with. In terms of the award stuff, we haven't gone down it as much and we've left it to the social services peaks because the award cuts across social services and that they've got a long history of doing that advocacy. So normally we support their advocacy. Yeah. Okay. So tell us, if, if you could may, uh, wave the magical wand, what would the ideal workforce, how would it be, how would staff be looked after? Tell us about... Some of the things in the future, if you, if we could, what's the ideal solution that we're going for here? Well, I mean, again, it's it is complex, and so one thing that we need is a long-term workforce strategy, and the other thing that needs to come along that with is implementation and collecting data and monitoring and reporting on that. So there's some accountability for it, but it needs to be funded, and the sector needs to be funded. And I think, as I mentioned, the sector doesn't meet the demand for about 50% of the people that need to access treatment. And that's pretty huge when you think about what impact that has on a workforce that can't meet the needs for the people that are trying to access their service and having long waits. So being appropriately funded is something that needs to happen. And I think there's all those things that services don't put in their contracts, like around making sure that they can provide professional development for their staff so they can pay for external clinical supervision to support their staff. These type of structural things from funding are something that services need to build into their contracts to be able to support their workforce. And then, of course, there's things that people can do around worker wellbeing strategies as well to make sure that their staff aren't being burnt out. It's a very important one, that, isn't it? But it is complex. Yeah, there's no simple solution, is there? And nothing that's going to change overnight, really. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if we go to, I guess, more the skills, the skill set side of, I mean, what's the, do you think it's more experience on the ground training that we also need? Or do you think there's some sort of, some skills, some education outside of the sector that they really need to try and help, help them develop? So I firmly believe that all health and social services, vocational and tertiary education needs to have drug and alcohol as a core component of anything. Yeah. We know in society that everyone will be impacted by the substance use of either themselves or someone they know. And so it seems crazy to me that for a nurse qualification that it's an elective 
rather than a compulsive part of their education. Right? So it just blows my mind. No wonder we, we have workforce issues when it's not valued as a core component of training and education. I just think any psych, social work, nurse, doctor, drug and alcohol and mental health should be a core component of it yeah. because we know in society that you are going to experience it. And whether you're working in ED or it doesn't matter which part of the health or even social services, we know homeless, housing, child protection, there's all these interactions. And so every health and social service qualification should include a core component for drug, of drug and alcohol. Well, I mean, logically that makes sense, doesn't it? Totally. And yet it's not. It blows my mind. What, what do you think about some of these courses? I mean, do you think you're looking at them, if we could just reinvent them, I mean, could we make them more current, more relevant and get more achieved in less time, do you think? Or, I mean, do you think that we need to make them longer and make them more, more? I guess, cover more more topics that we, that like you are saying, with um, AOD stuff and, and just add more onto them? Yeah, look, potentially, I mean, I don't work in, in that sector, so it's, Hard for me to say. I mean, I know yeah. when I hear about GP training around drug and alcohol, they're saying, well, they have to do everything. And so, you know, it's around trying to contain it all. But I think we definitely need to look at ways to improve training and education. And I know from what I hear that having drug and alcohol workers, having people with lived experience be part of the curriculum as well, like at least part of the component, having people that work in the sector, having people with lived experience come and talk um, to people that are being educated is a really important component of it. Yeah. Anyway, I just it's it's really interesting, and I, I just think I feel like uh, there's a really good opportunity in the education space to revisit it and just say, well, just because it's always done that way, should it be, and what could we do to improve or to have? Uh, and there's an opportunity there. I, I don't know what the answer is, but um, I'm not in the space either. But I just think that it's an interesting point. Tell us about the uh, the doctorate that you're currently undertaking. Okay. A short version. Basically what I'm trying to do is to respond to an issue from our members where we are funded by multiple funding sources from the Commonwealth, from the state, from primary health networks and LHDs. They all have different KPIs in their contracts to assess performance for accountability and quality purposes, but they all have different KPIs. So, for example, one of our members has is funded by about nine different sources. They've got over 100 different KPIs that are all different. So the purpose of my doctorate is to try to reduce the number of measures that are used that are acceptable to funders, treatment providers and service users. So the methodology was to talk to funders, treatment providers and service users, get them to prioritise different types of measures, access measures, outcome measures, experience measures. And the final stage was a Delphi process where we had 10 service users, 10 funders, 10 treatment providers part of a three-stage process. They started off with 92 measures, a range of measures, and we landed on 16 measures, which is what I'm advocating to government to say, get rid of all the other KPIs you've had. This is what we think are the most important measures of performance to assess accountability of government funds. That'd be a headache, wouldn't it? It's been a process, but I'm almost at the end, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty confident um, that I've got buy-in from funders and service users and treatment providers to advocate for this core set of measures. Yeah, I mean, just a headache for the treatment providers going through 100 different KPIs. It's totally crazy. I mean, I talked to one of our large providers who they have one person that's funded, they have funded, self-funded, that does that. Basically, their job is to collect all that data to respond to oh, these quarterly and oh, so it takes reports. a full person to do yeah. that. It's crazy. Man, that's a, that's a, yeah. That I mean, the whole concept of collecting outcome data is you collect it once, use it many times. Yeah. And so if we can get some consistency across everyone and get 
the PHNs and the Commonwealth and the state to agree. Yes, we agree. This is how we're going to measure performance of drug treatment. So it's an important it's an important thing to look at, though, isn't it? Really, and it could have a great impact for service providers. It's been a great process. I've certainly learned a lot as part of the process. As we look to moving forward, Robert, what tell us a little bit about what's what's coming up on the cards for you in the future? What are you excited about most? What's going on? Look, I think we talked about the peer workforce and the other workforce component that we're excited to work with some of our partners with is around growing the Aboriginal workforce yeah, and making sure that our services are culturally appropriate. Because we do collect that data for our members, I've just seen that the most recent data found that 22% of people coming into our services now identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and about 80% of our workforce Aboriginal workers. And so I think we need to grow the Aboriginal workforce to be able to provide culturally appropriate. We developed a resource around being more culturally appropriate in mainstream drug and alcohol services. Part of that is an opportunity for services to audit themselves to see how they can do better. And so that's something that I'm really excited about continuing to make sure that any Aboriginal person, whether they go to a community controlled or a mainstream service, receives culturally appropriate care. It's, uh, I mean, it's a great space and, and that'll be really exciting, be a bit of a challenge, but yeah. We've got some really great partners with our Aboriginal drug and alcohol networks in New South Wales to work alongside with us. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, what a great priority. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's great. What else is there? Is there anything else that you want to tell us about NADA with uh, regards to where it's heading, what's going on? Look, I mean, we are publicly funded and so we firmly believe that everything we do should be available publicly. So everything on our website is available for free and so I would just encourage people to check it out and get in contact if there's any way that we can support. And how can they get in contact, Robert? www.nada.org.au www.nada.org.au That's right. Okay, perfect. All right, well, that's uh, Robert, I really appreciate talking to you. It's really interesting to talk about... All those sorts of things, the workforce, where things are heading, what we need to do better, and also the exciting things heading into the future. We appreciate your time and thanks for sharing your story. Cheers, Sam. Thank you. Thanks. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.